0: Welcome, everybody, to the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience for Thursday, March seventeenth, 2022. We are joined today by two friends from the Every Bundle. I guess Every.2 is, is how to get to their website. And um, We've got Nathan and Dan. Do you guys want to introduce yourselves so we can identify your voices?
1: Sure. Uh, I'm Dan, <laughs> Great. Uh, and I am the co-founder and CEO of Every.
2: And I'm Nathan, the co president of Every.
0: Amazing. Thank you. Um, do you guys want to just quickly actually tell us what you or what, what your like one line pitch is for Every, and then we'll sort of like see where this goes?
1: Yeah, totally. So uh, Every is a uh, very simple. It's a, it's a bundle of newsletters uh, and we write newsletters around a lot of different topics that are kind of like tech focused. So we have newsletters on uh, things like productivity, strategy, the creator economy, crypto, and we put them all in one place, and readers pay one subscription price, and they get access to all the different newsletters that we make. Um, and it's a little bit different from other kinds of media companies in, in a couple of different, different ways. One is just like editorially, the kinds of pieces that we like to write are... We really like to write uh, long-form analysis and commentary pieces um, that are kind of for practitioners and by practitioners. So we really like to publish things that are by people who work in tech and are talking about things that they know from the experiences that they've had in their life. Um, so that's kind of the, the editorial model. And then um, we have a little bit of a different business model at every two uh, in the way that we uh, structure structure things. So uh, we're what we call a writer collective, um, which means that when we work with writers, we try to be somewhere between um, working for a media company and uh, like writing your own Substack. Um, and on the media company side of things, we do things like uh, you know, we give writers uh distribution to an audience, we give them a, a brand to, to write under, we give them an editor, uh, we pay them all that kind of stuff. Um and then on the uh kind of uh substacky like side of things, <laughs> uh we give uh writers a lot of editorial freedom to cover the things that they cover. We really believe like that's where kind of the best writing comes from. We don't have a central editor that like hands down stories and stuff like that. Um that's the first thing. The second thing is we split the profits. So we measure, uh, how much money each writer is bringing in, uh, whether that's hmm. subscription dollars or ad dollars, and we split the, uh, the upside, uh, 50-50. Um, and then we also let writers leave with their list. So, um, when, when our writers have been working with us for a while and for whatever reason it's not working either for them or for us, we don't want to like hold them hostage to like staying, staying with us because they're going to lose their audience. Um, we just give them a copy of their list and they go on their way. Um, so that's the that's the basic gist. Um, yeah, we've been running it for like uh, a little bit over two years now. We've about uh, 45,000 um, uh, free subscribers and like 2600 paying subscribers. and yeah, it's been really fun.
3: Um, let me let me get the glib obvious thing out of the way. It sounds like a magazine, except for the fact that a magazine <laughs> doesn't split all of the revenue uh, based on, on, on equal metrics and things like that. You literally read
0: their letter. I mean, if you go to every dot two slash letter, they said, mm-hmm. you've invented magazines. Great. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. But yes, it, um, it, it's a fair critique. Okay, go ahead.
3: Well, um, what we were just talking about... Um, uh, before we, uh, officially started recording was, was talking about, uh, how that business model has evolved. Because as you said, you've got, uh, I think you said 2,600 paying subscribers, but also, um, you guys, uh, pivoted towards advertising. Um, so I'm just, you know, in, mm-hmm. in any, any sort of broad strokes, I'm not asking you to, you know, disclose financials or anything like that, but yeah. uh, you know, how, how's the business going? And I do want to, Get into this idea of advertising because I have some thoughts on that 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 are kind of timely. Sure. Ooh, right. mm-hmm.
2: Oh no! I mean, I was just chiming in to say, ooh, because of the timely thing. But uh, <laughs> yeah, also, also because we have Evan here, who deserves a lot of credit for uh, the a- the fact that we do advertising. We did we we did like tiny bit here and there, but it was just kind of like. I don't know. It seems like it's going to be a pain. Like it's going to take a lot of effort to like communicate with advertisers and do the whole ad ops thing. And it's just it's a lot of extra work, and I'm not really sure if it's a good idea. But he was like wanting to try it, so um, you know we did it a little bit more because of that. And then it's turned into like a really good thing. So Dan, you should talk about the good thing of this.
1: Yeah, um, and and I can give you like a little bit of a summary of the business too. I think like the first year it was. Amazing! It was like, wow, this thing is growing super fast. I don't know why people think media is hard. <laughs> stupid. Uh, I like, we're just, yeah, this is like pretty freaking easy.
0: Um, <laughs> Said no one ever <laughs> about media, but you guys have, so congratulations. I would
1: Say like famous last words. Um, I would say like year two was definitely more, more, more of a struggle. It was harder. I think we tried to transition from it being just me and Nathan to it being an editorial organization with a lot of writers, um, with, with editors, um, where we moved off Substack onto our own platform that we built ourselves. Um, and it was like really trying to like grow up a lot and, um, that, yeah, that was just really hard. Uh, The business didn't grow as quickly. Um, we learned a lot of lessons. We made a lot of mistakes. Um, And, um, so, so so that was difficult emotionally. Nathan's written a lot about this, um, in his post year two, which was, which was really incredible.
3: Which I want to get to too, but uh, Mm. keep going.
1: Cool. Yeah. We we should definitely cover that. And then I think like towards the end of the year, we figured some things out. Um, we started, I think we started to figure out some things about the kind of content that we write and the, the things that work well. We really started to figure out, um, the ad business, um, which has been just like an incredible, Boon to the the whole operation, and things things have uh, started to pick up a lot. So we're 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 really growing pretty nicely, and and we're bringing a lot a lot more revenue from from the ad business. Um, yeah, it was just one of those things where I think we we really took the like hard line. We're a subscription only business, and there's a big trade off if you sell ads kind of mentality. Um, early on and i honestly i think that that kind of held us back and it was only because evan who who's he's here on this space right now um pushed us to to start trying to sell ads that we were just like okay we'll, we'll turn it on and we'll like see if uh anyone wants it and like we just got like a bunch of inbound like almost immediately um almost more than we knew what to do with and we were suddenly making a lot of money and it was like wow this is this is great. It's almost like year one all over again. This is pretty easy. Uh, <laughs> and um, and so now we've built it into like a, a really significant part of our business. And we have people that are like running it and doing outreach and all that kind of stuff. And um, I think that we feel like the core of the business is always going to be subscription. But mm-hmm. the reality is that like some writers want to write ad supported content, mm-hmm. um, either because their incentive is to reach as many people as possible. They'd much rather like... Um, reach reach a ton of people, then put stuff behind a paywall, um, or because the kind of content that they write is just better free. It's like sometimes you you write things that people want to pay twenty bucks a month for, and sometimes you're going to write stuff that's like really great and really valuable, but people don't feel like they want to pay for it in the same way. They won't. They you know it's it's better it's better content that's going to like spread, and so. Um, basically having multiple business models or multiple ways to monetizing means we can support a more diverse array of writers writing a more diverse set of things and that's been really great
3: right who's who's the one that did the essay about the creators have the multi-skew it's not Uh, just hunter walk hunter right okay um right Uh, just because you Take up ads doesn't mean that subscriptions not you, you could do away with subscriptions just because you do subscriptions doesn't mean you don't sell t shirts or what you know what have you um, and again we were talking right before like um, we we both experimented with ads together a little bit and the, the the thing that's timely about that is I um I had a conversation with um, a prominent sub stacker who I'm not gonna name I don't want to blow up their spot um, about them shifting to ads this month and mm. them saying, Oh, I didn't realize that there would be so much interest in inbound. I was so undervaluing that or mm. underestimating that. And, you know, even in podcasting, like that's been my experience as well, where we still have the, the ad free feed and we experimented last year with, with doing bonus content and stuff. But in the end, like, if we can reach 50,000 people every day um, and, and, you know, w- with ads and, and e- even the bonus content, the stuff that we were trying to put behind the paywall, I was just like, well, we could just reach more people with it. And then the ads made more sense than even the subscription thing. Um, I, I think uh, uh, Chris isn't uh, Alex Kantrowitz's is is ad supported as well. We we know a bunch of people definitely that do, yep. That yep. do, do newsletters and sub-stacks that have moved to advertising. And again, this is not a a, a binary thing. But um, you know, I, I'm just actually what I'm curious about is do you feel like do you feel like advertising could become not the main thing that you do, but the majority of your revenue, and then The subscription stuff is like, you know, sort of gilding the lily a little bit.
2: What does gilding the lily mean? (laughs)
3: Uh, Icing on the cake. Icing on the cake.
2: (laughs) Oh, man, that's incredible.
0: You're going to get yourself in trouble there. Although, yeah, Nathan tends to use nice turns of phrases as well.
2: Oh, no, that's my whole point. I, I admire it. I'm a collector of turns. I know, I know. No, you're going to have to use this one now. In, yeah, gilding the Lily. Yeah. I it <laughs> something kind of like protecting something traditional that's not... Um
0: yeah, I think no, there's I'm also sort of a quasi-sexual aspect hey, by the way, to that. Hey, I'm so. right now to
3: make sure that I didn't... Yeah, you know? make sure that this is like PG-13. <laughs> it says to adorn unnecessarily something that is already beautiful or perfect. Eh, okay. Oh, gotcha.
0: Yeah, because so Lily's so are beautiful, beautiful sure.
2: Perfect advertising business doesn't necessarily need to be adorned by subscriptions is the question <laughs> you're asking. I don't know. No, I think um probably subscriptions are always going to be the main backbone. I mean, that could obviously change, but I I just think it's hard to see a trajectory where we stop caring about subscriptions as much because, um, recurring revenue is like a beautiful thing. It is a, a, (laughs) it is a wonderful thing. And like, in a lot of ways, we've been able to weather a lot of kind of like, you know, content is really hard. You have to like find new product market fit every single day. Right. Like, um, you build a software product and you figure out a thing that works, you know, there's some, you have to nurture it over time, but like you've kind of got the thing and you can just keep like kind of refining it. Whereas content, it's like, okay, what's your new thing for me today? And you have to know as a writer, what are people going to want, you know? And, and it's just really hard to keep reinventing it. And I think, um, you know, for subscription revenue, it's really nice to have this base basic readers that's like, Auden, in they're here you know especially if they're on annual plans right they think of it as a long term relationship with you that's great so um you know the math could work out that like as we get bigger or whatever like, maybe advertising is more important i don't think we'll ever really stop focusing on subscription revenue because the thing that's freaky about advertising revenue is i mean you can run into a situation where if something happens with the economy or the advertising industry or whatever, your business can get very small, very fast, you know? Yes, certainly, yes. certainly in hard times, people might decide to cancel their or whatever, but um, it's just, it's a lot more resilient. So, I
0: don't know. That I mean, we, we may even actually see that, you know, with what's happening with the economy and inflation, you know, interest rate hikes. All these things may actually cause people to take a look at their subscription spend and decide that actually they'd prefer to go with something that's more, you know, all, not a la carte, actually, uh, sort of a, a buffet where they can get a bunch of stuff, but it's like very low cost. Right.
1: I'm just thinking, like, in this economy, 20 bucks a month is cheap now.
0: You know? mm. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Considering where we were like four or five years ago, yeah, totally. But actually, so I was
2: thinking we should rebrand our subscription as a token, and that way people think of it like
0: a mess. I was oh, wondering. Okay. Uh, well, you don't, you want to be careful about securities. However, um, All
2: right. I, I we're, we're spitballing here. Okay, purely <laughs> <really> theoretical.
0: <laughs> I mean, given that you know Congress is is going to start moving in that direction, uh, be very careful for what you wish for. And I, w- I was actually like as a very much aside was curious about, you know, Nathan, you've written about web three and and had those conversations, of course, being on means of creation and talking about the creator economy, um, the function of DAOs and about the ownership economy and things like that. And so it's curious that you spend a lot of time talking to people like in that world. And yet that isn't the approach it seems that you've taken with every. So what's your thinking there? Can you impact kind of like strategically, like why that's the case?
2: Yeah, I think like, you know the original inspiration for every was around uh creating a certain type of writing and building it using a sort of subscription business model with, with, with kind of like the subscription sharing on backend writers and so you know we, we have gone about building that and it's gone reasonably well and i think crypto offers a really new and and kind of interesting way to potentially monetize but to me right now it's just like Curiosity, <laughs> mm. basically, hmm. like
0: and, and I, generally speaking, I, or for yourself? Uh, what's that? Like, do you mean for you, or do you mean for everybody? It's a curiosity.
2: Oh no, no, no! I mean for us.
0: Okay. For
2: us. Yeah, 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 for me personally. Like, okay, it's interesting, but it's yeah. very. I mean, it's a curious thing to like go all in there, right? Yeah. And um, like, I certainly want to learn about it. I'm absolutely curious about it, but. Um, I do think one thing that I think is is for sure that's not just curious, in in practice, even if in the future it'll be the case that kind of like oh all media companies run on crypto rails, like all subscription actually should be tokenized rather mm-hmm. than just paying in fiat currency or whatever. And, and maybe you should have your readers bought in and like you know, they're part of their motivation for staying subscribed is to sort of participate in the economic value created by the their subscribes to. Like I could see that. But the reality today and foreseeable future is the only people who care about that are people who are bought in that full narrative. And that's really like part of our audience, not a whole audience, mm. right? So at the very most, we would introduce it kind of like as a new option. But even then, if you look at the tooling that's available, it's still very early days. And it just seems like, um, you know, there's always going to be a place for really great writing a lot of the institutions who produce the writing that we read today were created like a hundred years ago and we want to become that kind of organization,
0: You know, I actually, so, so, okay. Like I, I hear what you're saying kind of like, you know, where, where you're coming from. And so it just kind of occurs to me that, I mean, you can, you could do the DAO thing if you wanted to. You could do the crypto thing if you want to. It doesn't necessarily add, you know, an enormous amount of value right now. It might make some of the economics more transparent and, you know, get you into, I don't know, the, the maelstrom of stuff that's going on in the Web3 world. Um, but I suppose it's, it's not necessary. You can achieve the same or similar ends using fiat and more conventional, you know, structures. So I get that. The thing that I was wondering about, um, and you just alluded to it is, these institutional brands that get built up over time, right? So in some ways, what you guys are similar to, I suppose it seems like you're a little bit more similar to maybe like the Harvard, Harvard like business review. Um, and I was also thinking about like the economist, you know, I listen to yeah. a lot of the economist podcasts. I've, I've been a long time reader. And I was trying to think about who was it that started The Economist? I mean, it's sort of like getting a great domain, right? It's just like a great name for a magazine. And so yeah. once you start that and once you get it going, you have a, you have a perspective and you hire your writers and you start building a brand and you build this thing out over time. And it feels like that's roughly what you guys are, are trying to do and, and maybe are committed to. Um, so I suppose, uh, I guess my question is kind of maybe around like that, that legacy idea and A lot of, I don't know, newsletter type publications come and go. How do you create a sense of consistency and uh, durability? Um, you know, and uh, what was the word Matt Mullenweg used in a podcast the other day? Um, anti fragile. Like, how how are you guys thinking about that for every?
3: I think The Economist got started in the 1840s or something. I haven't Googled it, but, but if we're talking legacy, yeah. That's I mean, like literally are, are around in 150 years, god bless. But uh, uh,
2: go ahead. <laughs> I mean, I, I personally uh,
3: 150 years. Uh, I, I
2: want to Peter Keel to figure something out. Right? <laughs> right. You know, like letter, right. whatever no, but it, seriously, though, like, I mean, yeah, it's kind of like a wild theme right? Like, it would be amazing if that happened. Obviously, you know, most of, the vast majority of the things that I've worked on in my career, and probably, you know, in all likelihood, it won't last that long, but it would be sick if it did. Like, that would be awesome. So, like, for us, the key is, like, thinking about uh, how do we do this in a sustainable way, right? So one thing is economically sustainable, right? So that's part of the reason why subscriptions are so important, I'm are still glad that, that we have them um, and really focused on them. Another thing is, like, uh, you know, to produce really good writing consistently, you've got to understand what it takes to sort of like in, in, in the mind of a writer to like make that happen on a regular basis. So we kind of obsess over this. This is something that, uh, you know, I think also probably, at the, you know, big magazines, there's lots of culture and practice around mm-hmm. sort of like, why do people write? Like, mm-hmm. what makes great, what makes for great writing? What kind of environment? What kind of relationship with the editor? Like, this is something that we really focus on. And so like, it's the journey, right? Like we have not figured out the grand secret to it all, <laughs> or whatever, it's like a vastly evolving thing but it's something that feels like I could keep working on absolutely for, you know, with, with no end. Like I don't have any, any other thoughts of like what else I might do or how big it would need to be or what the exit would be or whatever else. Um, it feels like I could pretty much like hang out here and write stuff and try and get other really great people want to also write stuff and come up with a model that feels like really good, fair compensation where we're providing a lot of value to the writer and, and they're getting to capture a lot of the value too that they're creating. Um, and so, yeah, that. It's like a tricky thing, though, but I think it comes down to like, why do people want to write, you know, and how do you build a brand for really great writing that attracts the best writers.
0: But see, that's that different than like the thing. economist, which, you know, wants to bring a certain lens or discipline or perspective to yeah. the news or to what's going on in the world. Right. So I understand the idea of, and I, I'd like you to unpack what a writer collective is from your perspective. I, like, is I it, I
3: mean, they could, they could get there. They could eventually yeah, totally. settle on an editorial slant, but I, it, I think, know, they're just, yeah, mm-hmm. I
1: think what you're, what you're pointing to is something really important and it's something it's something about like, the thing that we're trying to achieve that I don't think we've figured out exactly how to mm. do it yet, but we're, we know more than we did before. And if we, <laughs> uh-huh. if we, if we figure it out, it will be the thing that makes us the kind of institution that we hope it to be. Mm. Yeah. And the thing that you're pointing to is that when you read The Economist, there's no byline, mm. right? It's Typically. Like, mm-hmm. it's just like The Economist is writing right. it. Yeah. Um, it's
0: collective identity.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And the difference is that on the internet, like what, what we noticed and what we've, what we've known for, I don't know, probably five five years or so is like the thing that wins is not that it's the individual voices. Yeah. And the force that we've seen over the last five years um, has been that those individual vo- voices have broken out of their traditional institutions and have been enabled by the Internet to like write and, and create on their own and be funded uh, doing that directly from readers or, or from ads. And I think the thing that we're working on is, and and the question that we set out to answer is, that's great. Like, we know that readers want individual voices, but there's a lot of power in getting a lot of voices together in one place. And it would be much better for readers if there there was a group of them in one place. And it would also be better for writers, because if you're on your own, there's only so much that you can do. Uh, You have to, if you're on your own, you have to run a business. Uh, If you're on your own, it, like limits the kind of content that you write like you have to get out content every mm-hmm. week if you're on your own yeah. you can't do like a long piece you know you can't like have a big thing in the opera that you like work on for two months <laughs> at least right yeah. um so well like the big question is how do you like retain the things that, that make writing on the internet so special like the, the 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 real uh connection with an individual writer but how do you do that inside of a group and that's like the question that a writer collective seeks to answer. And the first answer is, well, you have to make the economics feel more fair. Um, and so you have to give writers a deal where uh, if they're contributing value, they're making more money and they don't have to ask for a raise. Um, and you can just kind of measure it and say, okay, I did this article. It, it created this many subscribers, so I get more money. Um, I think the other piece, which I think is the other thing that you're alluding to is there's a lot of complexity in terms of editorial uh, when you're trying to figure out like who's in the bubble and who's out of the bubble and what kind of stuff do we publish and what kind of stuff do we not publish so that it's kind of cohesive. Um, and that's something that we're still figuring out. I think that we started by saying, hey, everyone can do whatever they want. Um, like within, like within some range of like acceptable, like we're not going to publish nice. Right. Within like right? a value
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, so th- this is important, yeah. right? Like that range is the thing that becomes controversial and determines some level of participation and, and commitment for the writers. So yes. is that on the every website or where could I actually see that?
1: We, so, so if you, if you go look at our founder letter, like we, it's in there. We lay out some okay. things that are kind of like, um, the kind of writing that we like to see or that we hope to create which are um which is things like writing that's by practitioners for practitioners so it's like writing about your own often your own personal experience in in an industry um writing that's like that's well crafted and and beautiful that helps people see the world in in a new way or help them be better at their jobs um so we have like some idea especially in that letter of the of the kind of things that we love um but It uh, seems like you guys
0: don't really get into more controversial topics, like the things that Substack seems to, on the one hand, be advocating for, you know, wanting to provide a place, you know, for those voices that have been kicked off of some of the mainstream platforms to go. Um, But the topics that you guys trade in are more sort of professional development and things along those lines. Is that kind of how you just steer clear?
1: Kind of. Yeah, we don't. I mean, we definitely don't. uh I I, like a lot of our stuff is, is more business focused. It's like less political or less divisive. We try to be less divisive. It's just, it's just more what we're interested in, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's, that's one, that's one potential, that's one potential thing. So like one, one axis you have to, you have to worry about is are do people like disagree a lot uh, inside of your collective? And so one way that that isn't as much of a problem for us is like, we don't, talk about things that are as divisive usually just the topic coverage is you know more business focused um but there's still lots of problems inside of that it's like well if nathan writes about strategy and i write about productivity like why should we be in the same place right Mm -hmm. and um i think that we've had a lot of answers to that over the course of the business um one one big answer that we've we've landed on is like it's It it makes it easier to do this if there's better personalization. So, if readers can tell us who they want to read inside of the collective, then it's great. Because, like, the fact that Spotify has a bunch of songs I don't like isn't really a problem because I don't really see them. Right. Um, But uh, I think. Um, you know, we've also kind of realized that if we have lots of different writers writing their own list, it would be much better if there was better cross-pollination and we could really like distribute more posts to more of the people that are inside of the collective. Cause like if I have a 20,000 person list, but every has 45,000 people on the list, then every time I push publish, there's 25,000 people that could see it that don't. Mm. So, uh, if we have a tighter editorial focus, we can all be rowing in the same direction more quickly. And so, honestly, that's, like, one of our big projects right now, and I don't think we have, like, a full answer to that, but it's something that we're thinking yeah. about a lot, which is, like, how do we create guardrails um, or a promise to readers that is, like, really, really legible without, like, totally taking away the ability of writers to cover the things that they're most interested in, which is what we think creates the best writing.
3: ZocDoc.com slash techmeme. And download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot slash techmeme. ZocDoc.com slash techmeme. Whenever I need to do financial research for this show, for instance, during tech earnings season when I have to analyze how various companies' stocks have been performing...
0: Um
1: so yeah, yeah stay tuned. <laughs> Definitely.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, it, it seems like it's so hard. Um, you know, because I feel like having been on the internet now for, you know, fifteen, almost twenty years or so, I've seen a lot of these platforms that have emerged they have a great amount of you know potential and promise and then you know reality strikes and you know Nathan you actually wrote about this a bit with um uh, you wrote about the Substack ideology i think is what you said yeah that's the i'll, uh-huh. I'll post the link um and It seems to me, like most things, and the way I kind of conceptualize this is that there's kind of a complexity balloon, uh, I suppose, or filled with complexity helium. And as you squeeze one part of the balloon, the complexity kind of goes to another part of the balloon. And the sort of volume always remains roughly the same. And so, as you guys are talking, like... I like this idea of, of a collective. If I were a writer, you know, I'd want to be around other writers to like, you know, uh, get ideas or feedback or grammatical checks or stylistic kind of improvisation, you know, like uh, jazz for, for writers or something. But inevitably, it seems as you want to grow... Like, you, you, I used to grow to the size that, you know, depending on how you're funded, you may need to, you end up having to make compromises. And it feels like, you know, Nathan, you had worked at Substack. Like, it, it feels like you are either philosophically opposed to some of the aspirations of Substack or more pragmatically aligned in a different vector or I don't know like I feel like there's a really rich and interesting tension between what you guys are doing and where Substack is going especially as they've just like launched their own native app and as you alluded to push notifications becomes a very important part of you know breaking through the uh kind of you know attention uh I don't know milieu I suppose so Maybe I don't know. Like from a business perspective, from a growth perspective, from a participation model perspective, can you unpack how you guys see those things shaping up and and changing and evolving?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think for us, like the key, really big difference with Substack is sort of Substack doesn't promote stuff, right? So like they don't have a general Substack audience that they send posts to in the way that YouTube does, right? Yeah. And for them this justifies the, you know, ability for them to keep content on the platform that we would obviously never publish, right? And for us, the trade-off, better trade-off is let's have like a tight kind of like high bar, you know, that's like all this stuff at the very least, of course, obviously has to meet like our basic human values, which are specific. Not every human shares our values, right? Like we're going to not do stuff that doesn't accord by those values. You know, somebody else wants to start a different writer's collective. That's like, according to their values I'm like that's fine that's great um but then also within that if, it, if it's interesting if it's like on the same vibe roughly even if it's on the same topics or by the same people um, then maybe maybe it coexists, right like maybe promote one author to another author's audience that works right so that's kind of like the project that's what we're trying to do we're trying to be a place where a writer can be introduced to a large audience a big portion of that audience feel like them because they're on same vibe, similar way of this the stuff that came before. Um, that's obviously really hard to do. The place with mm. engine metaphorical air balloon the complexity goes towards, well, how do you actually accomplish that? Because it seems like if you squint at it, like eh, it's all just kinda like tech Twitter people writing. <laughs> <Okay>? <laughs> right? But right. if you start to look to it, it's like, well, this person's crypto stuff has like a different flavor than this other person's crypto stuff and they're interested in a different kind of things, and this person doesn't respect this person or whatever, and it's mm. like, you know. The uh I forget I forget who said it. I think this year, someone said like five back and seems so uh tense because the stakes are small or something <laughs> like that. It's kinda like that, like the narcissist like, no matter how close you look, it's practical, we it feel like there's a very big difference between the thing their favorite thing that they identify with and then the thing right next to it. you know. Um so it can be tricky. That's really hard. And that's yeah, you know, we honestly have not solved, not defined. We find that some stuff the cross promo works really, really well, and other stuff to work less well. and We're trying to figure out and shape of that, and like how to how to make it
3: work. And fit. Well, I was I was also I was going to point out that I'm assuming that every hasn't raised as much money as Substack has, so you don't necessarily have the same scale pressures in theory. Um, but also, you know, in your in your piece about Substack, you did point out that um, I think Substack found that. Um, if you're a reader of one particular sub stack, you're like two and a half times more likely to become a paying reader of a different sub stack or whatever. So like it's almost like you're sort of um, you know, jumping the fence a little bit and 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 just like doing the sort of same not network effects really, but like the same sort of a thing. It's like effect.
0: network traversal.
3: Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's bundling, right? Like, and that's mm-hmm. the key thing. Like, there is this core. This is kind of like one of the things we started the company that I think that has proven true is there's an economic benefit to creators and consumers for bundling, mm-hmm. right? When you offer something up for a price, there's going to be some people who are willing to pay that price more. There's like a demand curve, right? And some people are willing to pay more, and some people are willing to pay less. And there's like a pretty principle proven mathematical thing that's like. In a lot of cases, bundling makes sense. Not necessarily every case. There's definitely not perfect. Um, but there's a lot of opportunities for bundling that, that create surplus for consumers and uh, give more money on the back end to
3: create. Well, because, and, and again, um, I'm uh, referencing your piece, but also this is something that everyone's thought about, which is, um, you know, how many sub can a person mm-hmm. subscribe to? And so that's where bundling makes sense in the same way that every time you go home for Thanksgiving, your uncle is like, yeah, but you know what the business I would start is all of your subscriptions in one subscription, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Um, that right. was me.
0: I was the uncle. <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay. So, but I, I, I want to um, take this apart a little bit. I mean, because, you know, as you wrote in your piece, the internet changes everything and i think that it's worth considering that that may actually be true especially when it comes to the nature of bundling and unbundling or token gating or opening up access to some parts of the network and restricting access to other parts of the network and then also considering weights on the nodes in the graph so what do i mean by these abstract concepts well it just occurs to me that that in the attention economy and we're still, I think, unpacking and learning kind of what the full, I don't know, spectrum of uh, attention economics is that what you guys are doing is first kind of providing a, I don't know, broad kind of gauzy view of how to get better at your craft You know, through good writing, and you're going to bring together a bunch of writers who are actually working together and collaborating. And again, I don't have a full picture of what those writers collaborating looks like, but let's say that they do to make good content that you really want to read, some of which is, you know, requires payment to access and some which is free and then supported by ads. Ads are simply windows um, into your attention sphere um, that are, I guess, paid for by people who have an interest in seeding the things that they are trying to promote, you know, to the readers, and it just it feels like the way. And I don't know, maybe maybe I'm either being overly generous with what the internet does, or struggling to imagine that this business model that was invented, you know, back in the 1800s or whatever, by the guy that wanted to give away his newspaper, you know, to get more volume, um, it isn't somehow new. Um, as I guess related to. The way that we build relationships with the people who are producing the content. So, you know, Nathan, like I followed you around like a number of different places, you know, from, you know, Prototent to Substack to, uh, you know, even Hardbound before all this, um, to, you know, what you're doing now. And so there is a weight to that node in the graph. Um, that means that I sort of, you know, follow along and there's kind of like an attention signal that already exists. And I guess, you know, in the economist model that, didn't really have the possibility to exist as much if there are no bylines so it just it feels like there's a little bit of a different i don't know environment in the creator economy that you guys are alluding to and trying to you know create some sort of i don't know kind of like a wagon train you know that's circled up and saying hey there's cool stuff in here that's going on and some people that you know come and join us and yes there is like you know a fair to get into this space I guess I guess I'm I'm trying to ask like how much does the internet change this how much do relationships between readers and writers make a difference um how does this change the economics of participating as a creator on the internet
1: That's a good question it's really broad like I think we could talk about that for a long time I'll take I can I can tell you about one piece which is like Perfect you Um, you kind of alluded to the idea that you, you followed Nathan around on the internet, um, hopefully in a non-stalkerish way. Um, mostly, uh, (laughs) um, I was observing in the Figma sense. Chris has always been a gentleman. (laughs) Right. Um, good to know. Good to know. Um, and I think that that's, that's, that is super important, right? That's one, that's one of the like founding principles of, uh, of every is what we've, what we noticed is when. We Nathan and I were writing our separate newsletters, and then we bundled them together. We brought our audiences together. We noticed when we added our first um, bundle uh, bundle writer, his name is Tiago Forte, and, and he launched us yeah. this list. He brought his audience with him too. So that's that was like a key growth lever for us, and continues to be a growth lever for us is um, is that the the reputations that the indiv- these individuals have that we work with uh you can kind of bring that audience together and kind of create one big audience together if if people join. Um, the next kind of like thing that happens is uh, someone like Nathan or someone like Tiago has kind of like this respect bubble. So people who uh, read Nathan respect him and, and care about what he thinks. And if he says, hey, go check out this other writer, they're going to do it. So, if you have a bunch of writers, each of whom have audiences and kind of combine their audiences, uh, those writers have the opportunity to like cross pollinate and promote other writers within the bundle. And you suddenly have this like group of people who now have all been introduced to each other like a big massive internet party that all kind of are friends because they all like the core of people that are, that, are, that are kind of in the middle of it. Um, I think that that probably answers maybe part of your question, but I'm not 100% sure. So, I'm curious like what that brings up for you.
0: Yeah. I mean, I definitely get like the, the cross pollination piece. I think, you know, what I'm, hmm, what am I noodling on? Um, it just feels like there's something both qualitatively and aspirationally different like maybe you know just going back to the original like early days of the web and imagining the web as being a place where anybody could publish anybody could contribute and anybody could kind of grow their stature you know over time sort of starting from you know almost nobody and nowhere and then rising up and i look at what's happening with mirror um you know, as a place for the Web3 crowd to kind of publish to each other and promote each other and to create new economic ways to kind of reward one another. And, you know, rather than just giving likes, you know, they, they drop some token or they buy some NFTs or something. And you guys are playing in a space where, you know, I I don't know, like, I think maybe I'm just trying to piece apart what is ultimately new about this, what is familiar and, you know, tried, but now happening in a new medium and a new environment. And so maybe what I'm asking is what what the nature of interaction is that might be new, novel, or different with every... Um, between every writers and, you know, the, the readers and do they find value in that? And is there interaction and engagement, or is it more of a passive, you know, consumption experience? Like you said, it's like magazines, right? Like I'm thinking about like Flipboard and Flipboard for a moment was this novel way of reading things that had this page curl effect that was like super realistic and new and exciting. And I, I haven't heard about them in years. So I guess, you know, part of this is about understanding human interaction, human connection, and Learning from another, and so you're also creating new organizational units and structures for people to come together on the internet. And I guess maybe that's the thing that's um, I don't know interesting to to observe.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the kind of like simple answer is what's new is you get to take an email list to you, and you get fifty percent subscription revenue drive, and you get promoted to an ever growing list. Which right now, it's like forty something thousand people mm-hmm. instead of having you start to start from scratch.
0: Yeah, right. totally. But so it's like the cold start problem. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's like the very concrete kind of like what's new. And then there's stuff that we're not doing a lot of right now. That's mostly right now the way we look and feel is like similar to any traditional publisher on the mm-hmm. Internet, but could get pretty different, which is like unlike the magazines of the past, like we do have the benefit of like data and infinite shelf space and personalization and all that kind of stuff. You know we're not really we don't need or we're not able to use it yet we're not at that level of scale but i think we'll theoretically be able to scale better as we go um covering potentially like lots of different niche topics within niche industries um that's a core part of the vision of every and you know that's kind of like far off in the future right but you know it, it occurs to me that like a job covering the tech industry yeah we're, we think we could go further actually.
0: one of the challenges that you guys have is that you're predicated on the the written word you know long form prose because as you were describing what you want to work on like that is tiktok but tiktok figured out how to do it with you know visual moving images so it is a harder problem i think to capture people's attention you know with words with you know sentences and that form of communication and so craft is and is a differentiator and so important which makes sense that you guys are almost like the mm, like uh, how do I put this? It's a pre formulation pro process, I suppose, to get content into a form that is both worth the attention that it demands. And then also repays the reader because you've gone, you've almost like done some of the pre digestion for them.
2: Yeah. I, I think there's some things that text just has a competitive advantage for, right? Like video is really great at certain things. Uh, text is better at other things, I think that you know the relative audience of text might shrink over time compared to like video or something like that, or might be shrinking. But I think the absolute audience text is growing over time. And uh, I think we're fine on that front. Um, or if we're not, I mean, I'm going down with the ship. We're tied to words. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I, we're not, we're I appreciate that. I mean and that that, that that being said, like we're super interested in new forms of reading text, right? Like that's what Hardbound is built out and like absolutely there's gonna be a spot for that inside every like as we have a little bit more bandwidth to try and experiment with new things. And then also like we do podcasts, love podcasts, conversations are amazing. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not like, you know, one hundred percent text purist, but text step right? And that'll that'll probably hold you.
3: Uh let's take the opportunity uh to plug that podcast real quick, Nathan. Which one? Uh, or, uh isn't it uh means of production? What? no, not means of production. Oh
2: yeah, means fun. of creation. Yeah, creation,
3: right, yeah, yeah, yeah. right, 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 right. Plug plug that one, yes, exactly.
2: Yeah.
3: Um Means of Creation
2: <sighs> is a great podcast that we that we have that it's so interesting because it started out as a podcast about the creator economy and not a podcast about Web3. So we've kind of like, you know, the meme of the uh guy Beautiful. walking with his girlfriend looking at the other girl like that everyone did on tech twitter where you <laughs> yes know, creator economy but so classic like you know, like, like music creation is like the sort of living podcast embodiment of that um but it's awesome i mean you know it's really driven by uh you know what lee is interested in my co-host and what i'm interested in and uh it's been really cool
3: it's not like it, it took it over and the creator economy isn't anything but it's it's how it's evolved and and so i'm just curious on your take based on working with lee um how web three has evolved how you've been thinking about what the creator economy even means at this point
2: yeah I, I think it's fascinating i think like the way that those two worlds intersected has more to do with the sort of like crazy world dominating like amazing momentum of web3 than it has to do with any specific inherent thing about web3 because i think web3 is like this mega potential mega trend that's like it's sort of like the internet it's like okay the internet's not just about uh text on a screen it's about the way that we basically communicate about the way that logistics happen in the world about like about everything kind of so web3 is similarly uh fundamental it's aspiration um, and then I think also Web3 or sort of creative economy just happened to be the sort of like hot thing in venture capital before Web3 became the hot thing in venture capital. Mm-hmm. So it's more about the interest of like a relative of VCs in the world that are like our ones. So like, you know, it's not that many people, um, than it is about some inherent, inherent connection. But I do think, okay, so you take like the idea of some degree and you apply the creator economy. There's obviously a lot of stuff that kind of really perfect, and I think specifically around rewarding early supporters early community members with like economic, problem. and I think that that's cool like I think it also might be security fraud in a lot of cases so like we're being careful about it but i do think it's really cool I don't necessarily it should be security fraud um but like you know it might be currently so um, that's like I don't know we're being we're being kind of like cautious about it because it's like a lot of work and kind of risky but um it, it it is very interesting and it's something that
3: but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. That's their Airnet Underwear crazy, comfortable, but elevated sweatpants, the Ace Collection, an upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads, the silver peak polo, that's my personal fave, and ultra soft antimicrobial tees for when you need to stay fresh longer, their silver crewneck t-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mac Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code RIDE. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code RIDE. With everybody fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Just go to constantcontact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. Constantcontact.com. Um, the other question that I've I've been sitting on, and um, sorry, Dan, but I'm, I'm going back to uh, uh, Nathan Post <laughs> about the totally sub- subsex uh, ideology. It, and I'm I'm going to ask this in in the lens of how you guys describe what you're doing with every, which is, you know, th- literally the, the, the title of the post is Substack's ideology. And, um, Nathan makes a bunch of points about like what the actual business model behind Substack is. Um, but even when I saw that headline, I'm like, Oh, okay. I, I know what he's talking about. It's the cliche of, Somebody quits their job. Somebody gets in trouble. I don't want to use the cancel word or whatever, and they go to Substack. That's that's become the sort of cliche at this point, right? Right. So
2: the very wise Platonic ideal of the background.
3: Exactly, and and by the way, you know Nathan, unless I'm speaking out of school, like when you were working with Substack, didn't didn't Hamish give you credit for? The sort of um, algorithm of like how many followers people had on Twitter might be a good person for a sub stack and things like that. Was right. that you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I
2: wrote, yeah. I wrote a Twitter bot that basically like the uh, engagement, who like who basically out of all the writers has what seems like a very active audience because you can't just tell by the number of followers. Have. There's a lot of people with like a million followers right. who get three likes with two. So we are looking for people who people would probably upgrade to paid.
3: Okay, so it's more it's more sophisticated than just the amount of followers, which makes sense, by the way, because it, again, it's it's sort of engaged. But so this is this is my question. I, it, gone around Robin Hood's barn to get here, but um, it it seems to me that Substack, if you buy into that cliche of well, the people that work the best as writers on Substack are the people that are the most controversial, the people that. Almost traffic in, for lack of a better term, uh, you know, banter uh, on Twitter and social media and things like that, um, versus what you all are doing. Where you said early on in the conversation that like there there are certain things that you wouldn't publish, um, not necessarily because you have an objection to it morally or whatever, but like that you have an editorial idea of like what you want to publish and things like that, and the people that you want to work with. Um, do you think because in your piece uh, again I'm sorry I'm going on and on you talk about how what Substack's ideology is is they're against um, the algorithm forcing things down your throat forcing engagement forcing things that make people angry except for the fact that that seems to be working really well for Substack if they pick these controversial people versus what you guys want to do is slightly different than that. So first of all, Substack, do you agree with my assessment that that's what seems to be working for them? And then number two, um, your vision from that being different, is it, it, does that mean you could never have the same sort of scale if you can't go for that controversy? Yeah. I, I
2: mean, I think that definitely uh, the, sort of most popular stuff on sub if you just like look at their leaderboard consists of people who are like, you know, basically pundits, right? They're like people with opinions, right? It seems like opinion columns are kind of like the defining genre of sub Technically, you can do other stuff. You know what I mean? Like you can publish really just like straight analysis, or you can try and break news, or you can do a serialized novel. But It seems like the kind of like most profitable thing to do is like have an opinion every week and the way to have opinions that a lot of people want to read is to have that are exciting and controversial and playing people you know tribal identities and all that kind of stuff and um it certainly certainly benefits from uh the twitter algorithm right it's it's not uh (laughs) it's a symbiotic where i think one half of the uh, relationship thinks that the other half is bad, but then also kind of <laughs> a lot off of it. So, um, you know, it's hard to, it's it's hard to, I I personally decided that in that post, what I wanted to do was just lay out what I think, and why they make their decision, what their sort of ideology is, what their values are. And I wanted to point out that uh, to a greater degree than a lot of companies, they do have a specific sort of ideology and um it constrains their decision makers. So I think a lot of people there's some like no-brainer layup type ideas that you would do if you're following kind of like typical thing that uh you know a YouTube PM do or something like that, or like someone from from Facebook or whatever. Like and and Substack isn't gonna do a lot of things. Like, I mean, even just simple things, like having ad, Hamish literally tweeted the over my dead body. Hmm. I think mean, that's pretty strong, right? So um it's interesting
0: Well, it's uh, not like there's no ads right i mean people the writers are actually putting their own ads in manually
2: right and technically that's against term service they don't um but yeah they uh they're not going to introduce an ever um so yeah i mean and in terms of like you know in that post i also just bracket out the whole part of their ideology or censorship free speech. It's a really, really important part of it. Mm. I decided I wanted to focus on the components of it because I think speech stuff is like, you know, it's a little bit of a third rail and it's very well understood and very well discussed. I think other that people don't quite understand as much or take into account when they're trying to think about why is that doing what it's doing? Um, so I'm, from our perspective, we think uh, we're totally fine to promote content to whoever in our ecosystem. Because all the stuff published, we're proud of, right? Like, we're a publisher, we're on a platform. Substack platform. And so they decided as a platform to be careful about what they cross because they host a lot of stuff that's not great, probably. Um, hmm. But like, uh, we don't host stuff that's not great. <laughs> so we can have an algorithm. And
0: yeah. So I mean, like, you, you, you both have like editorial control. And you have a perspective and you're not shy about being a publisher and i guess i i am curious since we're down this path and i don't think besides mentioning hunter walks blog that we've really talked about medium and medium has been around for quite a while they took a whole bunch of money they were kind of in the space beforehand it feels like they've tried to play catch up with their own newsletter platform and yet they seem I don't know, eternally conflicted, you know, between being a publisher or a platform, hence a platisher, but like, is it just that there's going to be several of these different places and the voices and the vibe are going to sort of be consistent, um, sort of within them and people will go and they will subscribe to whatever's going on in those places because of those elements that they're almost like not to get too meta metaversian about it, but like you you kind of know what the vibe of content on medium is going to be because the algorithm started to reward, you know, before of course it was on BuzzFeed, it was like listicles and now on Medium it's sort of like, here is why I left, blah, blah, blah. Or there there's sort of a a set of tropes that work. And each of the tropes, right. you know, kind of defines the content experience that you're going to get. And as long as it's human curated, which it is on every, and it seems like it's it's sort of unclear about, you know, Substack, that that will determine, you know, where your sort of subscriber dollars might go sort of like the stuff on Netflix is different than the stuff on Disney plus is different than, than the stuff on like HBO max. And you'll just kind of like, you know, move around the space and decide where, you know, your budgetary, your, I don't know, attention spend goes.
2: Yeah. I'm curious to what Dan thinks about Medium and the but I'll just try in with a quick, like, I think the last I heard of Medium, they actually kind of pivoted away from really publishing much at all, and they're more of a pure platform now, and I think what they found is they had some stuff with a lot of high-minded ideals, that, like stuff they could be proud of, that they put a lot of money behind, and it just sadly didn't really generate a lot of subscription, and meanwhile, they had a bunch of stuff that's like, you know, how to get 250% return in one day using 100x leverage on the 5 protocol. And like that drove a lot of subscriptions. And, <laughs> right, you know, right. they, they weren't maybe necessarily as proud of it. And it, maybe they just at a certain point were like, ah, what's the cost of keeping up here? Kind of, let's just let content rip, like, you know, cut our costs and like go into sustainable business mode. That's the vibe I got from the announcement they made. But like, I don't know. I don't really know what what's going on inside media. But I do think the big thing kind of like, at this point, just anachronistic about medium is it's wild that on medium you can't email a few. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's one thing if you were like app or um, whatever, it's like kind of cutting edge for an organization like that to share the email list with their writers. But medium, I mean god, why would anyone go somewhere where you can't email us a few? It just makes zero sense. So I think that's the biggest thing that's hurt them. Um, you know I understand why they tried to do it because for a long time it worked. until when it stopped working, it just it took a while for them to kind of like update the
1: policy. I think that's a huge, huge part.
0: Yeah. Dan, did you want to add anything to that?
1: Oh yeah, I, I think I think Nathan covered it pretty well. I def I don't I don't know that I have a, an opinion on exactly what happened to Medium, but I, I do think that there's this. It reminds me of a, another piece of the the bet that we kind of made with every you know thinking about if we wanna if we wanna have a bunch of writers like how are we gonna do it and and how do we settle on a vibe that feels good to us. Um, and part of that bet is like having having a gate or having a having a like a a limit on who can write for us. Feels like a really important way to create that vibe because the reason that Medium posts are the way they are is not because Medium started being like a low quality kind of junk place like and I'm not saying everything on Medium is junky but like I think generally if you see a post from Medium you're kind of like I don't know it's gonna be some tech bro like <laughs> that I, I don't <laughs> well
0: but it, it does go back to the incentives right once they launched yeah. the Medium publisher program then you had an incentive to write a certain way to get a certain number of claps.
1: Sure. That's, that is true. There's, there's the incentive, but also honestly, just allowing anyone to write mm. like, uh, it, if, if you like when, when medium first started, if you had, a, if you were writing on medium, it was really cool. Yeah. But then yeah. once everyone writes on medium, it becomes this kind of like drag. Yep. And I think, uh, this
0: is why we can't have nice things. Mm-hmm. Exactly.
1: And mm-hmm. I think like the same thing happened with Substack, where, um, sub are, there actually are something sub- cool, but like, a couple years ago they were even cooler um but over time you'll you kind of like see it degrade and if but if you have a place where there's a bar and the only people that make it over the bar are people that um have a certain sensibility and, and can get a certain level of quality then you can make a place where if you want to read about business type stuff you know that everything on there is good in a way that you can't do as well if um anyone can write
0: Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like the perennial challenge, you know, on the one hand, you want to democratize access and the ability for anybody to publish and to contribute their voice. But then you sort of run into that challenge, of course, that having everyone contribute sort of actually waters down the signal in such a way. And then, you know, not everyone has, again, the same uh, alignment of incentives, goals, or et cetera. Um, all right, guys, this has been super great. We're coming up on an hour. Um, Brian and I wanted to have a little conversation about Apple stuff. So you're more than welcome to like stay um, or take off if, if that's cool too. Um, but before yeah, you like go, or, if or there's literally,
3: uh, yeah, uh, you, you can just mute and then disappear silently but before <laughs> you do that. Uh, please plug anything you want.
2: Direct yes. people. Where should to people every... find
0: you? Yeah, yeah. What are the things that you want people to see or listen to or read?
2: Yeah. You should go to every dot read. Yeah. Everything, <laughs> Never written. Um, but I think I think that you know if you're interested in this kind of talk about like what's going on in the media, this how does technology change? web three stuff, I have a bunch of stuff on that, a bunch of stuff on DeFi. Um, I'm publishing a piece in called Screw It. I'm investing in Pelotons. The one in the Y. <laughs> ooh, ooh. That uh, I'll put uh, in a card there, Evan. I read your 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 recent twitters.
3: Your Peloton uh, platform piece, uh, I read that it was interesting, so I would recommend that.
2: Oh, thank you. Yeah, i basically in the process of writing that piece. I kind of sat on. Um, and I'm an I wrote about the process of shifting from trying to articulate what I thought the strategy change was to I think I believe in it. Um, anyway, it's like a crazy bet, but it's going to be fun. So <laughs> we will see. Um, but yeah, but every.
0: That's the only plug. Right? Cool. Dan, know,
1: Dan, do you have anything else? I mean, forward? yeah, I mean, you, you got it. Just check out every and, uh, follow, uh, follow both. Of Twitter. Um, uh, I'm at, at Dan shipper
0: and, uh, Nathan's at N Bishop. And Dan, what is the, what is the name of your newsletter? My newsletter is called super organizers. Exactly. Um, which is an amazing yeah. newsletter. So everyone should check it out. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah.
1: Thank you guys so much for having us. This is, this is really awesome.
0: Awesome.
3: Indeed. Thank you so much for coming on. And again, if you just happen to (laughs) go on mute and then we say something about the Mac Studio that you want to jump in on, you can. Otherwise, uh, Chris, I wanted to do something because I didn't do it on the show today. Okay. Um, I did read the Mac Studio review from The Verge, but what I Mm. didn't do Mm -hmm. was the uh Apple Studio Display review. Oh god,
0: I read some of those and uh not so good.
3: Um well so number 1 cuz remember we talked about how uh I didn't uh go ahead and buy Yeah, what did
0: you end up buying? The...
3: Well so no I I didn't get a laptop. I never got a, ah. a Mac Pro, um yes. because I literally I maybe use my Mac Pro once a month. It's 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 uncharged most of the time. <laughs> um, but but this this iMac that I've been using is is right. my main driver now. And so okay, I souped up a Mac Studio, got an eight terabyte hard drive. Like nice. this motherfucker is gonna last oh, me man. the better part of a decade, I hope. I, yeah. And I got the I got the Ultra, you know.
0: Oh, uh huh. Um,
3: so right, I spent uh, a good amount of money. I, over $6,000. Wow. But what I did do, you know, as I'm writing the show today and you know, I, 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 put the, the Mac studio review in there and then I didn't put the studio display review in there, but a Patel at the verge mm-hmm. scathing review, yeah. I canceled the studio display wow. order that I also put in because fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> because it's not worth it. You can get a 34 inch wraparound display for about a thousand bucks. Yep, yep. That has HDR and and variable refresh rates and things like that. And so, what do you think is going on? I neither of us are going to know the answer to this, but yeah, a Um, really weird miss to me.
0: So I will share. um, uh, Joanna Stern actually did a review for uh, the Wall Street Journal um and i will I will pin her um review to the um the space here, and she actually did a really good job of comparing five different displays sort of side by side by side, and it really kind of i think comes down to what you 're evaluating the display on you know. I think for many, many people, this studio display is is going to be great. It's going to be fine. It's going to be way better than whatever they, well, I don't want to say whatever they have now, but if you have an older iMac or, you know, for example, for many years, I was rocking uh, two Apple Thunderbolt displays and I did not want to upgrade because I love the form factor and man, it was so painful when they didn't have retina and I'm like trying to do design. And of course everyone had moved on anyways that's here and there. It seems it, like it, it, it is yep. 5k. I get that. Yes.
3: And 5k is rare ish, right? Ish. Now. So it's,
0: yeah. But um, it, like, I feel like this is a case and I'm going to just, I don't know, go on a limb and uh, it's not a conspiracy theory so much as it is kind of like a wondering about how Apple manages its supply chain. You know, they have to sort of buy a certain number of things at a certain point in advance, you know, plan for a number of products years in advance. And then decide when they're going to roll those products out and when the technology on their hardware is going to be ready to power them etc right so and you also have to sort of like time the market in terms of use cases and what people are going to want and need I I, I wonder like when the planning for the studio display started you know was it pre-pandemic was it post pandemic because the cameras that ended up in this device now I guess Apple has said that there's there's going to be a fix that comes in software or something which is a little crazy to think about but if the cameras on these uh, displays are not that good. You know, is that because there was a logic pre pandemic when webcams yeah. just weren't really that important for the vast majority of people. And now they uh, are. And I, 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 you I mean, know, that's the, that's the
3: problem with Apple never. Uh, uh, I think it was MCC MG sealer. That mm. was like uh, uh, things that never change is Apple has the best friggin' cameras, the best camera unit in the world. And yet they still can't put a decent camera <laughs> on a Mac. Right. Um, Okay, it wasn't the it wasn't the webcam that was the deal breaker for me because I still I've got this webcam hmm. uh that's external that has a light on it which okay. the right the the studio Wait, So so what webcam. is your deal breaker? Cuz that that is the thing that they all kind of like shout on. Well, right, which they were like um oh, the the camera's insane. It was when I realized that like, you know, I hadn't actually paid attention to the spec in terms of refresh rate no uh, hdr
0: right like, th- yep. like the the, the local that- dimming yeah
3: exactly right yes. if if i can't watch dune on it right? because everything yeah. is so grayed out
0: yeah then what the fuck am i spending it, it feels like am a I major mind? miss and again it feels like they're selling their old stock to make new for you know to make yeah. room for something else
3: yeah yeah yeah, and yeah. and 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 I I did upgrade the four hundred dollars
0: for the oh for the little the tilty stand, thing, uh huh. Yeah. <laughs>
3: <So then laughs> when I saw that, I immediately canceled. I'm like, what am I doing?
0: <laughs> and I'll get a, I know. for a hinge. You paid four hundred dollars for a hinge. <laughs>
3: right. Well, because look, what I can do because these exist. There's like an Alienware thing that is is relatively new. That's like a 34-inch mm-hmm. sort of wraparound gaming one where it's going to have all of the refresh rates, and it's going to have the dark blacks and things like that. Um, the only thing that gave me pause was the, the speakers.
0: But mm-hmm. I heard those were good. like yes. the Six of them. Yeah. And yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so anyway, that was weird. Meanwhile, I'm still, based on all of the reviews, I always go with the Verge reviews because yeah. I feel like... Um, they're it's not that they're, they're the most comprehensive it's more that they're the most
0: I feel like they're, they're aligned make, with like, you know, our use case or the ways yeah. that, you know, we might ask questions about this thing. It's like they always
3: make the most sense to me. Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh-huh.
3: Um so for the Mac Studio, like again, I'm thrilled to get one if I ever get it.
0: <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm a little jealous to be honest, but I am happy with my um my MacBook Pro with the M1 chip.
3: Yeah, well, and and by the way, you know, I did do the research. Uh, like, um, you know, even for I am a creator. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but podcasting—you got to crunch some audio,
0: you know, and and yeah, maybe some videos someday.
3: Podcasting doesn't require. I can't, you
0: went with the ultra, though. That's that's. It sounds like a little a little over overboard. Well, but, that's
3: what I'm saying. That's yeah. what I'm saying. But the reason I did that is I was trying to be like, I want this to last.
0: Eight years. Yeah. No. I. I, I want to get. I to maxed out mine for for the same reason. You know.
3: Yeah. 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 Um. So I'm looking forward to that. Um. It'll be interesting to see if um I really do get it in June or if like. Okay. Know. Wait. Wait. So yeah. sorry.
0: Continue, and then I have like one more conspiracy theory to to throw at you.
3: Oh no! I was just gonna say. As far as I know. Uh, beginning of June. Um, mm. So we'll see, like maybe they'll slip it and all of a sudden it'll become uh, the end of, of May. And then, and then uh, give me your conspiracy theory and then I have one more thing to
0: give. Okay. So my conspiracy is this, um, we know that Apple, you know, uh, the Apple headset, goggles, glasses, whatever you want to call them are mm-hmm. going to be arriving, you know, at some mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Um, what What is occurring to me is a couple things. So one, these things need an enormous amount of compute to drive them. Two, right. you need to be able because, to
3: because we assume that they're not going to tether it to an eye. It's going to be a standalone device. We're assuming that.
0: um So this is this is a might, bit of my conspiracy you might theory. Have one
3: in your pocket, but you're not going to have to wire it. for well, the compute is what I'm saying.
0: Let me say something different. So okay. my my thought and my question is about what the field you know, sort of in a radar or, you know, radio sense, what the field of computing in the future is going to look like and what the signals around us are going to, I don't know, contain in 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 terms of bandwidth and connectivity and compute power. And I don't know exactly how this is going to work from a, you know, privacy and security perspective, but setting that aside, we have so many sensors, so many devices, so many objects that have the ability to do maybe continuous partial computing that I wonder if, you know, the Mac studio and devices like it or appliances that sit there and have all these, you know, kind of spare GPU cycles lying around will sort of like the find my network and the air tags become part of this mesh network of computing that powers the glasses. Mm. So rather than there needing to be so much compute power on the devices themselves, there can actually be an interplay between what's happening kind of on nearby devices and what's happening Mm. on your device. So the thought I guess is, That this Mac Studio display maybe doesn't need to be that good, isn't that good, because you're going to want to actually be computing in glasses of some sort in not too long. And then the question is whether or not those chips will be powered by like ultra wideband or something else where, I mean, maybe they're tethered for some of the time, but maybe mostly they're not. It just, it, it strikes me that. These computers are so powerful and most people are probably going to only tap a portion of what they're capable of. So why do you need all that extra kind of, you know, power in the house and just Mm, lying around? mm, Um, each of the devices, each of the Apple devices are becoming so powerful unto themselves that it just, it seems like it only makes sense that all that compute power could be harnessed or marshaled in some way through some wirelessly connected device. Um, you know, as you're moving around a space, you know, that has these devices in it. And the reason why I'll go a little bit further on that is because lately, you know, I've been, you know, in my AirPods all day long, and I will sometimes forget my iPhone like down in the basement and I will walk upstairs and it's ostensibly connected through no, no Bluetooth. And I'll continue to have reception of whatever podcast I'm listening to. So the fact that either through or in, you know, ultra-wideband or Wi-Fi or whatever. Again, this is why it's a conspiracy theory and probably, you know, radio engineers will tell me this is not even possible, but something along the lines of where you start to put compute power into places where it didn't exist. For example, uh, an A13 chip in your display, mm-hmm. you're starting to be able to have access to computing in a different way than just having it localized in the device that you're currently using. Anyways, yeah, that's
3: and thought. are and, and, and they're, you know, the fact that they're putting the most powerful chips in every device, yeah. like y- you get the most powerful M chip in your iPad, you get it in your phone. You get it. In your, um, that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful conspiracy theory to <laughs> me because uh-huh. that means that I've done the right thing yes. by future-proofing myself. And well, they tried to do it with like the home pod,
0: you know, and it failed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So they were looking for a way to break into the home. I mean, not like, you know, uh, as a robber might, but sort of, yeah. With a device that people would really want and would put around, you know, just as Amazon and Google have figured out how to do, you know, that with on the lower end of the market. But it turns out that Apple is very bad at selling kind of, you know, lower end, lower end market products for the house. You know, they, yeah. they can do it with iPhones, but that's about it. So,
3: it, 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 you know, it is weird what Apple is always bad at. And so the Occam's razor thing is the M.G. Stiegler thing of they just. Can't put a fucking decent <laughs> camera in a Mac, um, but uh, I, I I do like that as a conspiracy theory. I do I do like the idea that you know the the competitive advantage of Apple Silicon. I think like as as sort of revolutionary as it's been right now. Hmm. I don't like we're seeing the tip of the iceberg of where that might yes. go.
0: I mean, I think w- when it comes to power, when it comes to, um, again, ultra efficiency. wideband and 5G, yep, and efficiency, uh, like the Find My Network is part of something that will happen. And I just, I'm sitting back and I'm seeing things that Apple is doing that seem very anti competitive to things that, you know, Facebook was working on years ago, for example, payments. One of the things that I just noticed, um, and maybe I'll, I'll find my tweet and share it. Um, is that it seems like in iOS 15.4, you now have the ability to kind of top up and add money to your Apple ID. And mm. somebody re- replied and said, oh, no, that's been there for a while. But, you know, I, I don't think so. And so, it seems curious to me that Apple is... And actually, I remember this is one of the things that Apple was um, announced, where you could pay for things using just your phone and no credit card reader, right? Mm. So, right, the device right, right, becomes right. your wallet.
3: Right. Anyways, the, so. The square, square killer, right? Yeah.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Let me, I'll share this to the, okay, great. So I just pinned my tweet. If you want to take a look at that, you know, my assessment is that, you know, Apple is slowly becoming a bank, but without calling itself that, Apple is slowing, slowly building a social network in iMessage and Game Center and a bunch of other things, which is competitive with Facebook. But of course, you know, Apple wants, oh, listen, you know, regulations we're the first, against We're not Meta. the first
3: people to point out that Apple is, you know, sort of an absentee landlord on top of a social network that they right. could exploit at any time. Of course. Um, you know, just messages being the, the, the obvious low hanging fruit there. But, um, it, it, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, look, the, they're further ahead in wearables in terms of watch ear. You know, uh, earbuds, earbuds, whatever. Airpods. Like, mm-hmm. air, oh, sorry. Yeah. See. <laughs> <laughs> do I do this for a living or, or whatever? Right. Um, the, uh, but but then so right when if if they can get to glasses, then it, it and you've got a car. Like yeah. when you when you connect all the dots in terms of how you live your life on a daily basis, like really close to what is potential for what Apple could connect together in terms of, you know, your, your day-to-day and everything
0: like that. Um, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Nope. That's it. So it just, it feels like these things are precedents to what is going to happen next. And when on the one hand, you know, we still have this kind of one-to-one relationship with our computing platforms. It just seems like, you know, in five to 10 years, you will use kind of, you know, just like we use water or electricity, we'll use just compute that's around to power our augmented reality devices that we're all wearing.
3: Well, and the funny thing is, is that if that works out the way it is, and if an Apple car actually comes, Mm -hmm. the funny thing about the Tim Cook era Mm -hmm. and the, 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 the teens and Mm -hmm. the early 2020s will be, Oh, they pivoted to services almost as a um, placeholder Hmm. waiting for all. No, I don't think so.
0: I don't think okay. so. Well,
3: no, I'm, I'm not saying as I'm not saying that as they just did it because there was nothing else to do. Hmm. It was more that that also lays the groundwork for this holistic. In sure. the same way that you know Matthew Ball years ago said, you know, one day you're going to have a Disney subscription, and we're waiting for that Apple subscription or whatever. Like yeah. you know, y- you'll pay Apple five hundred dollars a month if it's your phone, if it's your car, if it's your all these things with all of the services. So like it's, I say placeholder as like they're waiting for all of these other pieces to be this holistic lifestyle.
0: No, I think it's happening in parallel. And I think the services are driving the adoption of the devices. So uh, I know that you can get Apple TV on some other platforms, but not all, you know, you kind of get the device and you assume a set of services will be available for you. You know, like I accidentally subscribed to like Apple arcade and it's actually like really delightful. It's really nice. Like there's, I, I, I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, like the, the great game on there. What is it? Uh, the car game. Uh, shit. I'll look it up. Oh, keep going. there's like Metro something. I don't know. The one I've been playing is called grindstone. It's, it's a lot of fun, but going to the app store and being able to click play as opposed to, you know, buy for $2 or whatever is an amazing experience you know it is having that entire library and you know going back to what we were talking um to Dan and Nathan about like having these bundles of content that are at a certain level of execution and then you just know that if you start playing it it's going to be you know at least somewhat good at least someone like t- took a look and it's not just some app that was you know built to just put ads in front of you because it had a catchy name or a good you know logo or something so i don't know i just i i think what this generation of M1 devices does is it sort of fits into the paradigm of the previous set of hardware devices. And we're not quite yet clear on where this stuff goes next, um, especially as it supports more mobile uh, or new types of mobile expressions of of computers, uh, namely, namely the glass
3: when you use code RIDE at checkout. That's 20% off your order at CutsClothing.com with promo code RIDE. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Experience the perfect blend of style and comfort with Cuts Clothing. CutsClothing.com, promo code RIDE for 20% off. onepassword.com slash ride for your growing business. That's two free weeks at onepassword.com slash ride. Don't let security slow your business down. Go to onepassword.com slash ride. The game I was thinking of is mini motorways. Yes. Which okay. Is mm-hmm. my go-to game for waiting for the train to show up and it's, it's, it's beautiful. Hmm. Um, Okay, I got one more. Okay. I got five minutes. Cool. This is not Apple, Great, and this is a different gadget. And by the way, I want to stress that uh, p- people accuse me of this sometimes. Uh, this is not a paid thing. If 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 I ever do an ad, you'll hear music behind it, okay? <laughs> yes, exactly. In the same way that I, Apple hasn't paid me to talk about the, their stupid $7,000 computer. Um, <laughs> are you familiar with the Remarkable 2?
0: No. Tell me about that.
3: Okay, I got
0: this this week
3: and I'm in love. <laughs> wow it is a um, it's a e ink tablet mm-hmm.
0: and oh um, wait I know what this is Guy Kawasaki yes. gave me one.
3: Oh yeah well, oh. he might have given you the the, the one. version one oh. this is the version two oh.
0: Oh.
3: Now for example so it's an e ink tablet. It's, it's the thinnest tablet I believe that exists. Now wait,
0: is it, does it have colors or is it black and white? No,
3: like it's black a, and white. Yeah, like it's um, like
0: a Kindle. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, it also, right, a Kindle, but not with, a, not with the backlighting. I'm assuming that would be the mm-hmm. remarkable three. Get <laughs> right. the backlighting on it. Um, and it's expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to tell you eventually why I got it, uh, recently, but as an example, so all of the, articles from every that we oh. were talking about. Yeah. Um, I sent them sort of like a read later thing to this. And so then I'm highlighting and reading them yep. and marking up my notes on top of it, using the stylus and things like that. That's not the reason I got it. Okay, the reason I us. got it was, you know, I'm, I'm doing all of these, you know, three and four calls a day talking to, mm. to companies and things like that. And and I, so I have all these notepads if you can hear, you know, these are the the literal spiral notepads on my desk of, like, the notes that I'm taking when I'm talking to companies things like that. And it's because you, you know, Chris, when we do interviews and things like that, I, I do things like Simple Note and whatever yeah. for, like, questions and stuff. But I still, when I'm on a call, I'm still writing things down on pen. So the thing that convinced me to do this is, so now, man, I'm <laughs> writing on this tablet in longhand Uh and then so i can then save these as files and Uh so it's like all right this is company x y and z and i can look it up later i can search for it i can i can um transform my handwriting into
0: text oh okay Mm -hmm.
3: um you can do things like you know my wife's an architect so i'm showing her earlier this week like so she sketched out all sorts of stuff on here and i'm like oh my god this is a you know i don't know how to draw this mm. is a really good stylist. um you can uh screen share oh it. really so she could she could be with um clients and like do a sketch and you know on a call with clients and stuff. anyway i'm in love with this thing wow it is expensive mm-hmm. um but it is it's taken it looks like it's about by three,
0: 350 bucks
3: yes or uh 400 for the uh, if you get a new one, I think so again, this is not paid and maybe I'll reach out to them and you'll sure. And then, eventually.
0: yeah, actually I can, I can put you in touch with um, guy Kawasaki. He's yeah, I think uh, one of their evangelists or something. I
3: fucking love it, man. It is. <laughs> and it's a, it's I a did not sexy device this. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I don't know if people have a bunch of, I, I, if I could take a picture of my desk right now, there's seven spiral notebooks in a pile here, and now I have the. Remarkable you know, you know what the,
0: the the favorite part, and I think this is going to be the last thing to close out this this podcast is that you spent more on a hinge for your display <laughs> than you did on this device that you absolutely love. So yeah, that is yeah. that is the Apple um, distortion field for you right there.
3: No, but remember. I canceled the display
0: <laughs> <laughs> and now so, you can buy the remarkable three.
3: Well, uh, well, I'm going to get a wraparound, uh, uh ah, display the 34 inch or 40 inch yeah. Nice. Cool. All right, Chris, yes. uh, thanks for indulging, um, my gadgetry, uh, talk there.
0: Yeah. Mm. Um, it's great. Um, do you want to plug anything? Oof. Um, Hmm. You know, I will say one thing. Um, and I don't I don't have a review yet, but I've just joined Reforge. Um Reforge is a kind of learning studio, I guess, for product managers. And now I'm a product lead at Republic. Mm. Um it's I don't know if I've announced that yet. I don't know. But anyway, so I'm no longer in BizDev. I'm now a product manager slash product lead, and that means I have to like have to do stuff. So in some ways, that's a bummer, but also I'm very excited about this work, and um, Reforge is going to teach me some things. So we'll see how that goes. If anybody has an experience with Reforge, you know, feel free to reach out and let me know how it is.
3: All right. Um, and the only thing I can plug is that uh, we are living in the old Matrix. Arsenal not beat uh,
0: Liverpool. Uh, well, so. <laughs> so it goes. All right. Thanks, Brian. Good night, everybody.